Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. Pop the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the I've never heard of such a long sentence for something someone did with a computer, essentially. A life sentence for running basically a Craigslist website. In a way, Ross Ulbricht is the American dream. He's an entrepreneur. He saw a new market. He went for it. The will of the Republic will dominate this BS! You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And it's another semi-quarantine edition of our podcast with episode 29, The Dark Web and part three of The Silk Road. Yeah, it's not really, I mean, some of the quarantine stuff's been lifted and some businesses are starting up again but i think it's up to 15 or 16 cities around the country are at least have protests and some are full-blown riots and yeah. shit's on fire and, and it's madness we're recording this right when george floyd was murdered by that police officer and the police officer has now finally been arrested and charged with third degree murder yep and so that's kind of where we're at in this timeline. It's just really crazy. Yeah, tensions are high. And I really feel like the media and the president are just fanning the flames. I, to me, it feels like it's a orchestrated thing. I don't know. Everything feels weirdly orchestrated. Because I think it is. Well, Anyways, don't Silk Road. kill innocent people. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. So, we had a really awesome episode last week, which took us a little extra time to get out. And then you had a couple days off in a row, which rarely happens. And so we went down. We had to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So we were going to try to hurry up and finish this. But, like, (laughs) I had to read the book again, basically. I got, like, the ebook version from which... If people don't know, you don't have to buy books. You can download them for free from the library. I still have my Multnomah County library card. (laughs) (laughs) And there's an app called Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. It's awesome. They have a really rad true crime collection. So, I mean, I've probably listened and read at least like 20 books off of the Libby app completely for free. They let you have it for like three weeks at a time. So if you... And unfortunately, I don't think the same can be said of libraries near where we live. They don't have quite the selection. Man, Multnomah County Library fucking rules. 
So even if you don't live there, try to get a library card there so you can get a free Libby app. You can have like yeah. 20 titles out at a time. Get on the uh, Silk Road and get a fake ID from Portland. <laughs> I think it's pretty easy to... I don't think you even have to like show proof of like residency or anything. But anyways, the Multnomah County Library is awesome. I need to donate to them. So I read the ebook then and really... I just didn't want to miss any parts of it because there's just so much. And so, I mean, I, I had to gloss over some parts, but I got, I feel like, most of the big, big plot points. And while each of us are talking, the other will, you know, chime in and say things that we feel like should be said, right? We're going to try. Okay. So we left off in the summer of 2011. After the Gawker article was written and after Senator Schumer spoke out against the Silk Road, Ross packed up his things and got the heck out of Dodge. He moved to Australia for about six months, continuing his drug empire from afar. This is the point at which Carl Force of the DEA agrees to be a part of the investigation and Jared Deryagin, the Chicago Homeland Security Investigations agent, stationed at the Chicago O'Hare International Airport, starts investigating the Silk Road after noticing a bunch of packages containing drugs coming through the airport. Also, this is the time period when one of Ross's employees, known as Variety Jones, will become his closest confidant. So Carl Forrest goes a little off the deep end with his whole undercover thing starting well before he was allowed to. In the fall of 2011, the site was well infiltrated by agents posing as customers and vendors, trying to gain access to Ross Ulbricht, still known as the system administrator at this point. One of these agents is indeed Carl Force, as Knob, the, quote, Colombian drug lord. Yeah, we kind of introduced him last episode a little bit. I mean, he had like a, a user picture with like an eye patch and he had like an ID made for him. Like he really, he was used to going undercover. He also had a DUI or something and kind of like a. Yeah. And I also, I also remembered as I was reading it the second time that like he did an undercover operation and went way too far. And actually I think that's when he got the DUI. Ah. Yeah. He did some lots of drugs and he didn't fan away the girls I guess, like, kind of like how he was supposed to. And he was just straight up acting like that's a, dr my, that's a drug That's my kind of undercover Yeah, and it may have been, project. like, meth or something. I don't know what. But he, I think he had to go to drug rehab because he got deep into it. So he has this tendency of not only going undercover, but, like, he kind of yeah. forgets that he's undercover. He cosplays you know? hard. Yeah. So even though this isn't kind of, like, real-life undercover he still takes it kind of to that extreme, which is probably why he got as close to Ross Ulbricht or DPR as he did, but it definitely came at a cost. By February 2012, Ross Ulbricht allegedly became the Dread Pirate Roberts, a reference to the movie The Princess Bride, which I think we talked about last time too. The Dread Pirate Roberts is a title taken by pirate captain after pirate captain, not the name of one man. This is a suggestion from Variety Jones. The legend of the name gives some future plausible deniability. <laughs> plausible de deniability. 
That's what I said. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) However, at this point, DPR slash Ross, or whoever was behind the name, was loving the attention. Many of the users called him Captain, (laughs) and Marilia went about their work praising their boss. While morale was up, so was the hacking. At this point in 2012... Oh, and remember, like... He would have movie nights with his employees. Yeah, and these they would uh, watch like V for Vendetta and like mm-hmm. talk about it afterwards. And they would start like book clubs together and stuff. Okay, at eight o'clock, everybody push play. Yeah, he really, he was really something else. You hang it, up first. No, you hang up. First. I know. And he, man, the conversations that he had with Variety Jones and Knob, yeah, were. Smoochy boochy. I know. They would say <laughs> things like, good night, honey. Like, love you, darling. Like, it was like, you know, ha- smiley face. It was weird. Anything goes on the dark web. I mean, it's weird because, like, they're not gay. You know what I mean? Like, it'd be fine if they're gay. But, like, I guess, you know, I they really needed companionship. And the only way that I think that they knew how to get it was through these interactions online. It's weird. I mean, it's just it's just not my life, so. They definitely don't sound like hardened criminals. No, they do not. Yeah. That's what the juxtaposition of those two things, like being this like gnarly drug lord and also like this loving employer is it's so strange. So, in 2012, DPR was getting attacked regularly with hackers demanding ransom. The Silk Road sales were up, though, selling over half a million dollars a week. That's some serious bread. At this rate, VJ projected $100 million in sales by the end of 2012. Ross's cut was averaging around $10,000 a day and growing. He couldn't launder it fast enough, and his tastes were definitely not matched up to his wealth. But with big wealth comes big paranoia. After six months in his Australian paradise, he felt like it was time to pick up and go elsewhere. He tried Asia for a little bit, specifically Thailand, but then realized the potentially exponentially worse punishment he can get there. Thanks, Amy. That was a fun one to say. I write almost all of the episodes, and I tell Kevin (laughs) to look at it in advance. Uh, Yeah, that (laughs) sentence was written by Dr. Seuss, I think. <laughs> so he left again coming back to Texas, back to his home base basically. And then down to Costa Rica to his parents' properties and eventually a detour into Dominica where you can buy citizenship with a simple donation of $75,000 to the government. So anyone that needs to get away, that's your that's your place. Apparently Ross had completed an application for this, which was found on his computer at the time they seized it. Also, there are conversations between him and VJ talking about this, the contingency plan, in case shit hit the fan. And just as a reminder, VJ is Variety Jones. I will post a picture on our Facebook group and in all of our social medias. He's a funny looking guy. I didn't, I don't, I may have posted him earlier already. But he's a very important character in this. And so we're going to refer to him probably as VJ and Dread Pirate Roberts. We're going to probably refer to just as DPR because it's easier. And so we're we're going to recognize that DPR is maybe not always Ross Ulbricht, 
but we might kind of insinuate. Well, we're going to probably vacillate between saying DPR and uh, Russ, uh, DPR and Ross, like synonymously, recognizing that, you know, in terms of kind of keeping this like a linear narrative, that's, you know, whatever. I think you'll be able to follow along. Yeah. So Carl Force, the DEA agent playing the role of super drug lord Knob, writes Ross slash DPR. I got to say, Knob is a bad... Well, it's a biblical thing, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. But still, the nah, city come it, on. isn't the name of the city. Yeah, yeah. I have some city, like like where the, the where, no- where shit happened. <laughs> the knobs live. Yeah. <laughs> so Carl Forrest, the D agent playing knob, writes Ross slash DPR an email asking to buy the website. His email goes unanswered for quite a while. He waits with bated breath, all the while building up his status on the website. Eventually, Ross does write him back, wanting about a billion dollars. Oh, just that. Yeah. So when Knob tells him that he needs to see financials in order to move forward, like it was going to be that easy. Like, oh, yeah, here you go. Here's my W-2 or whatever. 401 or W-2, whatever. We don't know anything about taxes. Ross stops him in his tracks. Nope, that wasn't going to happen. Regardless, Knob was now a known entity, someone in a position of power and money to DPR. That wouldn't be forgotten. It's also significant to note that Carl Force has basically gone rogue at this point, not reporting and or encrypting conversations and actions that he's having and taking with DPR. About this time, Ross realizes that he needs to move again and decides on San Francisco. He reached out to one of his longtime friends, Renee Pinnell, who moved years earlier to jump on some startup or something rather in the Bay Area. But before moving, Ross reached out to Julia to meet one last time before the big move west. He took this opportunity to tell her that he was so glad to be rid of the anxiety and stress of the Silk Road and to assure her that his hands were entirely washed clean of it. She was glad to hear it. Then Ross departed for the Bay. Okay, now to introduce another major player to the game, FBI agent Chris Tarbell of the Cyber Crimes Division. Author Nick Bilton of American Kingpin sort of makes him sound like a douchey, broy dude that's pretty good at his job. He loves competition. He's a Chad. Yeah, but he's a Chris. He loves competition, Miller High Life, dive bars, and joking around at work. They talked about, like, there was this dive bar he liked to go to, and they called it Drinking the Tray. Is that what they called it? He would bet money, like, uh, they had this thing where he would bet money that no one would dare to drink, like, the liquid the sloshy, that was left yeah, on the like that was slosh on the, yeah. And he was always the one to... And he, yeah. I don't know if, yeah, he was always the one to drink like the pickle juice, whiskey, beer, mixed drink concoction. That was his weird flex. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a weird flex. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And then he would do this game at work. It would be like the would you rather game. And he was like, would you rather have sex with your mother or sex with your father? And he was just constantly like. Or sex with me. He sounds like one of those soul vampires. (laughs) Yeah, he does sound like a person. um, He's, yeah, he's one, he's. One of those guys that's got to to be one up than, everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's probably got a big knob. <laughs> and so that's why I think 
he would you'll you'll see. His he had, knob. <laughs> <laughs> he had just taken down a major hacker gang known as Lulzsec, but now he would take on trying to find the people behind the Silk Road website because he needed that challenge, you know. The number of stories and non sequiturs that happened while the Silk Road was up and running are many. So we're going to highlight the juicy ones that involve alleged murders, sting operations, or events that led directly to Ross's ultimate capture in October of 2013. Yeah, we don't want this to be a six-part episode. Yeah, I mean, we could easily make this into another part, but honestly, just read the book or watch the movie. Or, And man, I've now read the book twice. I watched the movie twice. I found out there was another movie on freeross.org's website that looks really boring, but has a lot of information. And I I got a lot of stuff from the Free Ross website as well. But I mean, there are so many different rabbit holes you can go down with this story that we're just not going to be able to get all of them. But like there'll be times where we'll be able to kind of insert some of our opinions and theories and other other things that have come up from other people's points of view. The next major event that we want to highlight is Curtis Green, a.k.a. Chronic Pain, which is his username on the Silk Road. What did they also call him on the on the, like the playground? The gooch. <laughs> the fucking gooch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He sounds like a fucking gooch, too. I mean, yes, he sound he's a big doughy dummy. He's not gooch. dumb. He's a big doughy. And if you don't know what the gooch is, it's the area. He's a crybaby. Between the balls and the butthole. That's taint. Yeah. Also so the gooch is a taint. Yeah. So he's a big crybaby and like he has every right to. I mean, it sounds like he's had kind of a hard life. Well, I actually don't know why his life is so hard. I just know he's in a lot of pain. He's literally in chronic pain all the time. So he becomes a system. Ad- well, he becomes an administrator or moderator or something on the Silk Road in November 2011. He was like super duper present on all of the boards. Like we were like Placido was saying in the interview last week, he was on the heroin boards because he used it for pain management. And he was he he was addicted to heroin and he had done benzos and all basically tranquilizers and downers and stuff like chronic pain was very, very well versed in. And so he was super active in all of the communities online and basically dread pirate roberts noticed that and then pulled him in so he was kind of scouted to be in this position he was also a dealer he was a vendor on the website and was doing pretty well and had like well over a hundred ratings before dpr kind of scouted him out and pulled him onto his team so he was making money by being a vendor but then he started making more money by being like a system administrator and at the time he was making more money being on the Silk Road and being a, a moderator or an administrator. He was making more money than his wife was making full time. And I think that, they, you know, they definitely had a dream of being able to make to make it so that she didn't have to work anymore. Crime pays. <laughs> <laughs> so his job was uh, mediating problems on the website, like really kind of trolling all the boards and making sure everything was running smoothly. So as we said before, Carl Force, a.k.a. Knob, offered to buy the Silk Road and was turned down. As a follow-up to that, in April of 2012, he offered to sell a substantial quantity of drugs to a vendor who could then list the narcotics on the Silk Road. By December of that year, Curtis 
had become involved, allegedly working on Ross's behalf as a middleman. He agreed to accept a shipment of one kilogram of cocaine borrowed from the Utah police, worth $27,000, which would then be given to the vendor. As a result, Green's personal home was offered and used as a delivery address for illegal substances. That seemed like maybe not a good idea. Have a brick of cocaine just shipped to your house. I mean, obviously people were doing it constantly, but, I, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, that ain't shit to stitches, but... <laughs> On January 17th, 2013, federal agents paid a visit to Green's white suburban home in Spanish Fork, Utah, where he was found to be in possession of those drugs. Authorities confiscated Green's MacBook Pro laptop and Samsung phone after his arrest. They also seized $23,000 in cash from his fanny pack and a bunch of Bitcoin from an online account. One of my old roommates got <laughs> fired from a job that we both worked at because he had, I think it was a Glock 19 in a fanny pack that he left in the girl's bathroom <laughs> while he was working. All of that just is crazy. A gun, fanny pack, and women's restroom. <laughs> yeah, he was an interesting guy. <laughs> As members of the Marco Polo Task Force. And that's where Marco Polo, we haven't introduced it yet, but that's the DEA task force that also has like other people on it as well. But Marco Polo, we mentioned in the first episode as the person who basically figures out and writes about the Silk Road, the original, the ancient Chinese one. So that's where they got the name for their task force is like they're going to find out the Silk Road, you know, edgy, edgy. So this Marco Polo task force team began going through Curtis's things upon his arrest. Carl Force and another agent, Sean Bridges, noticed... And I actually realized Sean Bridges is Secret Service. Ah. They don't really talk about it. He's not a major character at all, but towards the end of the book, they do mention he's Secret Service. So either he changed or he was the whole time and he was just helping out with this task force or something. Under undercover. So Sean Bridges and Carl Force noticed that Chronic Pain's account could gain unfettered access to numerous users' Bitcoin accounts. Thinking that no one would notice, and since they were logged in under his account on Silk Road, the agents took it upon themselves to take a little here and from there and not let anyone know. Sean tinkered around on the computer and was able to sneakily siphon $350,000 out of other people's accounts on the Silk Road using Chronic Pain's login credentials. Then, Sean <laughs> simply transferred that money into his own personal bank account. Never can trace that one. <laughs> yeah. Upon hearing Chronic Pain's arrest, DPR is accused of seeking out someone who would punish Green. Based on online conversations highlighted in court documents, DPR told an undercover agent that his employee... And the undercover agent is Carl Force, just so you know. Totally trustworthy. <laughs> so he told Carl Force that his employee had not only been arrested, but had also stolen funds from other users. He then allegedly requested that Carl, as knob online help him find someone to hurt Green for his mistakes. 
DPR even had an image of Curtis Green's ID, and it was something he began to require of employees for situations just like this. So Carl Force and Sean Bridges went about fake torturing Curtis in a hotel bathroom, taking pictures of them drowning him in the bathtub. Only a few days later, authorities say that DPR changed his order to, quote, execute rather than torture, citing potential issues if a punished employee were to approach and inform authorities. Carl agreed, asking the supposed Silk Road leader to pay two installments of $40,000 for the murder. Seeing as how the agents had already left, they instructed Curtis and his wife on how to stage a photo that looked like murder, <laughs> telling her to basically make him look wet and have Campbell's soup coming out of his mouth. <laughs> These guys are pros. So the agents... And we'll post the picture. <laughs> I have the picture. It's not, it's not easy to find. It's, it's sort of easy to find, but I found it on Twitter. Yeah. Can save that shit for the spank bank. I guess you don't have to save it. It's right there on the internet. So it's good stuff. Uh, the agent sent all these. He didn't photos. actually die though. Yeah, thank goodness. Well, he's he ends up being a pretty decent dude. The gooch lives on. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, he wrote a book called like The Truth of the Silk Road or something. Yeah. I haven't read it. The gooch speaks. <laughs> <laughs> Tales from the dark side. We can cut that. <laughs> The agent sent all these photos of Curtis to DPR to prove his death. DPR responded, I'm pissed I had to kill him, but what's done is done. <laughs> you made that sound real sincere. <laughs> like, totally. Well, that's how I imagine he says it. If you believe that DPR is still Ross at this point, and the book does, the documentary does not, Half of the websites out there do, and half of the websites don't. So it's really a mixed bag at this point. But if you truly believe that Ross Ulbricht is DPR, what that does is it adds a count of murder for hire onto his rap sheet. Now, now if you're not super familiar with true crime here, there have been numerous cases. Of course, I can't think of any right off the top of my head at this moment. But there have been numerous cases where someone has done like a murder for hire, like, oh, kill my wife. And then like police stage it. All the time. Yeah. And or kill my husband and then police stage it. And then they get you still just because that person didn't die. You believed that they were dead. You paid somebody to kill them. You get like the, the punishment for murder for hire is often way more than the hitman's punishment because you actually made somebody else do your bidding for Don't you. Don't kill the messenger is what yeah. is going on there. So you can get a life sentence for murder for hire even if the person doesn't die because you wanted them to die and you did everything in your power to make sure that they were dead. And then a lot of times like when those sting operations happen – they will show them, you know, here's the picture of your dead spouse or the dead person that you wanted, you know, and they're like, awesome. And that's when they nab them, you know. Yeah. So don't say awesome. So one of the things, you know, <laughs> we've already kind of like insinuated and hinted at the fact that Ross Ulbricht is in prison for life. Now, if he had if if this was provable and DPR really was Ross Ulbricht and this really, really did happen then maybe he should be in prison for life. But that's a big but at this point, okay? So that's just something to hold on to when we kind of get to the end. Seizing upon this opportunity and completely separate and unbeknownst to Sean, 
Carl began stealing money from the Silk Road too. However, this came in the form of information that he would sell to the Dread Pirate Roberts to help him stay one step ahead of the law. He would do this by creating another persona, Kevin. Kevin, <laughs> you're such a disease. <laughs> the imaginary diabolical task force agent who contacted the imaginary Colombian drug lord and offered to sell information to DPR at $50,000 to $100,000 per piece of useful info. So, if Carl was flirting with breaking the law and double-crossing the DEA, he was well over the line now. He was a full-blown criminal at this point. He made sure to encrypt his conversations with DPR and only deal in Bitcoin to keep everything away from his agency. By the end of all of this, Carl Force was able to earn slash extort $757,000 from DPR. How much did he make a year being a cop? Not that much. And remember last week we talked about his lemon house? Yeah, yeah. And like him Which kind I of think drowning. Which I paid off and all that shit. Yeah, I mean. Crime pays. I'm not even. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to pretend like he's a good guy. No, but, he's not. He's not. But like. What what do you what do you fucking think? You think you're gonna get away with with this? So, You've so, never gotten away with anything before in your fucking life, you know? And you're the you're the man, you know? Like you're the guy. I know he's supposed <sighs> he works for the government. He's supposed to steal. <laughs> no, I, you make a he, good point. I, he just like blows my mind. A few months later, DPR allegedly hired a Hell's Angel member to take out another blackmailer. As the Silk Road became larger and larger, Ross, or DPR, had more and more trouble controlling it. Other hackers began targeting the Silk Road for extortion, including a user called Friendly Chemist, who, became bla- who began blackmailing DPR. Is that your dad? <laughs> He's friendly. Friendly fire. DPR contacted a user called Red and White, a man who claimed to be a member of the Hell's Angels. After some haggling on the price, Red and White would take out Friendly Chemist. Three days later, Red and White told DPR that his problem was taken care of. In 2018, authorities finally captured Red and White, but there's still no evidence that he or anyone ever took a life for DPR. And we are not going to go through all of the murder for hire things, but I believe that there were at least a couple more hits, quote unquote, ordered to Hell's Angels to get rid of people, apparently from the account of DPR. I so there's around six. right? I think that there were six total, including chronic pain and something else that we're not going to talk about in detail, but they do talk about in the book. And it's it's a good point to make, I suppose. You know, because, I don't know, it's a difficult legal thing. But some of the drugs that were sold on the Silk Road obviously made their way to people who then took them, you know. And there's That's what a, people do with drugs. Yes, yes. There's a side story inside of the book about a kid. I think his name was Preston. The Australian guy? Yeah. Yeah. And him and his friend, what was it? Was it like MDMA or something? It was some synthetic... synthetic- like hallucinogen ask, yeah. from China. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, they was make it prom night? And all this fucking shit. Was it prom night? It was some, yeah, it was like, like some, some celebration. Yeah, yeah. Like and he was a high school related. kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And basically, he took the drug 
thought he could fly and he ran off. He didn't fly. Yeah, he like ran. It was like a fourth four story building or something. Yeah. He like ran off a four story building and died. And so at Ross's trial later on, I believe that the parents go to it and they make it yeah. like an impact statement. Yeah. So even though he wasn't charged with that guy's death and he's not going to be charged with these other alleged murder for hires from the DPR account. You're one thing that we'll talk about later on is that they won't he won't be able to get the stink of those murders or alleged murders or alleged deaths off of his trail, no matter how hard he tries, which very much influences the jury, I think. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> but it's weird because he wasn't charged with them. There that was some there's some screwy ass things maybe that happened. Maybe they couldn't prove that or maybe they were like the backups in case they, you know, so they can reprocess. You know how they don't charge some serial killers with all of them. But he's not ones? but like why would you get life in prison for literally no violent crime? But, but like the jury was aware that he maybe ordered like six hits. Uh that that heavily I think they poisoned had on, the jury. enough stuff maybe that it didn't matter. <sighs> But still not, you know. Uh, I don't know. I know it's maybe they couldn't prove it. I don't know. Well, they couldn't. Yeah. No. No. Oh, well, nobody that's has ever they, been. That's found. why they charged him with the other fucking shit. But it shouldn't have been enough to get life, anyways. Yeah, you know, f- being at the helm of the fucking biggest drug ship fucking, ever. Yeah. <laughs> multi-billion dollar drug organization. Well, it's what they were able to get was the kingpin probation. status. He should have got probation. <laughs> he should have just gotten, you're never allowed to touch a computer again in your life sentence. Just cut his hands off and then he'd have to do it with his feet. <laughs> well, he, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, Ross was feeling the heat for sure. In June 2013, Ross moved into a random Craigslist apartment Using only cash for rent and deposit. Not he, sketchy. <laughs> well, it's not sketchy. I mean, when you're dealing... I use Bitcoin. <laughs> he went by Joshua Terry. Around the same time, IRS agent Gary Alford, yay, he's my favorite character, was brought into the investigation. He was supposed to be investigating where the money came from and went to, as, you know, being the money guy... But he had a feeling that he could find what was the equivalent of a parking ticket in the Son of Sam case, but for DPR. So just to explain that a little bit, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the 44 caliber killer, a.k.a. the Son of Sam. Well, little lesson there. Well, little. little lesson there. He obviously killed people. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Obviously did. The he 44 killed, caliber killed, killer killed people. So was it 1977 or 1979? It was in that, the, it was late I 70s. It was late 70s and there was a mass hysteria in New York City it was proper. A hot summer. It was a very hot summer and he was killing random people with a 44 from afar like a sharpshooter which he had been trained by the military as a sharpshooter. Isn't a so 44 had, a pistol though? Yes. Why would you shoot from afar with a pistol? Because he could. <laughs> okay. Good enough for me. Because he didn't want to get caught. So. 
Okay, yeah. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so basically, he was caught by a parking ticket. A police officer was able to kind of deduce that there was this one car that was always around, blah, blah, blah. Basically, they were able to figure out if they could figure out who this parking ticket had been assigned to, like what car it was and who it was registered to, then they probably had their person. And lo and behold, that's what happened. He basically was caught from a parking ticket. And a lot of serial killers are caught by fairly like mundane things, like a traffic stop for having a light out or something, which I think was Bundy. Or I'm sure there's like people screaming, being like, no, it was that blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever. You are probably right. Yeah. But like the idea that like you could catch somebody by a fairly mundane action, like getting a parking ticket or something like he was like, there has to be an equivalent. And, and it was also important to note, well, not like super important to note, but oh, was it the summer of 69? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyways, it was okay. a while ago. It's the year that Gary Alford was born. And so he kind of felt like this weird kind of connection to it because he was born in New York City and it was the summer of Sam, son of Sam, the son or the summer of the son of Sam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and he said, I bet I can find the parking ticket, quote unquote, that can catch DPR online. Like, let me just, you know, but at the same time, he's an IRS guy. He's a numbers guy. He shouldn't have been, he, you know, kind of shouldn't have been doing what he was doing, but obviously he was going to do what he was going to do. I imagine he was kind of like the guy in Rain Man. Well, and they talk, they talk about how he read everything three times because he could always kind of you know, deduce something that no one else did because he was so observant. So, yeah, I guess he kind of was like Rain Man in that sense. Just like you in this story. <laughs> <laughs> One of the early observations of Gary's that I appreciate was his ability to see that DPR was clearly a white kid from the suburbs. Being a black man from the housing projects, Gary could suss out what kind of a person DPR was from the way he wrote about quote unquote the other people and violence he was like yo dpr sounds like a white dude that's kind of a karen <laughs> can i just say real yes, quick yes you can i would like to point out that this is a good gary i think <gasps> oh. our was that our first episode yeah. was about the first bad, three episodes yeah yeah bad gary's and amy especially amy more than me <laughs> talked a lot of shit about gary's and i just want to say this gary He's a, he's a good Gary. He is. Good he is. Gary. Doing a simple Google search, which we referenced in like the first and second episodes, is like you can find a lot from just a Google search if you you know are a good Googler. <laughs> <laughs> and there I am going being Dr. Seuss Fucking again. Man. So doing a simple Google search of the first time that the website had been mentioned online, Gary came across a very early post on the Shroomery website that mentioned the Silk Road. It said, I came across a website called the Silk Road by a user named Altoid. He then Googled Altoid and the Silk Road.onion and went back to search for the first time these words had come up together in the internet ever. On a separate forum, he talked about the idea of creating a heroin store that would allow people to buy heroin on the internet using Tor and Bitcoin. Similar to the Shroomery forum, there was a post written by a user called Altoid. What an awesome thread. You guys have a ton of great ideas. Has anyone seen Silk Road yet? It's kind of like an anonymous Amazon.com. It's 
really selling it. <laughs> yeah. Gary was able to connect it to an email account that was frosty at frosty.com, which was obviously fake and led nowhere. However, as Gary dug further and was able to uncover another email account that looked like it had tried to be deleted, but actually wasn't because, you know, the Internet like always has footprints of what you have done, even if you think that you have deleted it. That email that the person thought had been deleted was Ross Ulbricht at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any more plain as day there. So he was able to do all of this without having to pull like any like special credentials or anything. I think he just like asked the website yeah. like, hey, Siri. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Siri, who had uh, Frosty at Frosty.com before that? Oh. Hey, Siri, who's running the Silk Road? <laughs> my my okay, watch Okay, thank you. I couldn't quite hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. My watch is always listening. <laughs> that was funny. He would hold on to this name for a little while. Also around this time, the FBI and Chris Tarbell mysteriously got the Icelandic servers that the Silk Road was using. I'm not a techie person. I don't know what the hell, but basically, I'm just going to cut that. Who cares? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Reykjavik Metropolitan Police have confirmed that they have handed over data on the Silk Road at the request of American authorities. It's unclear how much information Iceland turned over, but the FBI claims that two Silk Road servers were based there. Icelandic police say the site was actually hosted there. The passcode for opening the server was, try to crack this, NSA. I love that. <laughs> so... Now we're going to go on to something else. On July 10th, 2013, a Canadian flight of mail came in and was filled with envelopes making their way to the Customs Mail Center at San Francisco Airport. The mail handler on duty that day unpacked one of the boxes, reaching for a pile of square envelopes that had remained close together throughout the journey from Canada. Individually, each of these square envelopes was not suspect, but together, as a group, something wasn't right about them. And they talked about how the return address, like the name was always just a little bit off, and the number was always just a little bit off. So it would be like John Smith, 333, you know, Smith Avenue. <laughs> yeah. That was nice. John really Johnson on yeah. and John then it'd be like, Johnson's Lane. Yeah. It, everything was just off by like one or two numbers or one or two letters, but they were all clearly in the same handwriting. handwriting. Yeah. And so he was like, man, this is, this is weird. And they all had kind of stuck together because they were like square shaped and they were kind of hard. And so he ended up on top of this weirdness each of the recipients were random people in the United States, including one to Andrew Ford, who lived at 2260 15th Avenue, San Francisco. The mail handler grabbed a seizure form, filled out the appropriate boxes, and then sliced open the envelopes to see what was inside. Unbeknownst to Ross's new roommates, Ross, who was posing as someone named Joshua Terry, was actually assuming the identity of Andrew Ford, the previous tenant when he got mail. <laughs> I hope if you're that's... not drunk because it's going to make your head spin. <laughs> so Ross Ulbricht, who's not going by Ross Ulbricht with his new roommates, he's going by Josh Terry. He found out that their previous tenant, Andrew Ford, was still getting mail randomly from time to time. So he kind of seized on that opportunity and was like, oh, it won't even be weird. They won't throw it out. 
like if he had put it under like Ross Ulbricht or, you know, what he just wanted like to create as much confusion so that he wouldn't get caught. Right. But what's weird is that all of the IDs, once you opened the envelope, which I mean, he assumed that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. They all they were had all, his they're... same pretty face yeah. with different names. Exactly. And so some of them had like photoshopped beards on and stuff. They look, I'll, I'll post a picture of that too. It's like they're Mr. Kinda, Show they're, or something. Yeah. They look stupid. <laughs> So, following the trail of the fake IDs, investigators eventually tracked Ulbricht to San Francisco, but not after getting the address numbers transposed and bugging a middle-aged Asian man first. <laughs> so they f- He almost got away with it just because of that. <laughs> so the problem is a lot of the street names in that part like, of San Francisco. Like 15th Street, 15th Avenue. Yeah. yeah, so there's minor details, so a lot of people get fucked on that. So they came hassling this old Asian guy, and he told him <laughs> to fuck off, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Homeland Security was finally dispatched to the actual address uh, that the parcel was headed to and found Ross there, who Tarbell says, quote, volunteered that hypothetically... Anyone could go on to a website named Silk Road on Tor and purchase any drugs or fake identity documents the person wanted. So he's even selling his website to the fucking DEA. This isn't the DEA. This is Homeland Security. Oh, sorry. Uncle Sam. There's a lot of agencies that are Let's keep it simple. Yeah. Yeah. Big brother. Why did Ulrich need nine fake IDs? You ask? Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> An earlier posting on the Silk Road forums may explain it. Dread Pirate Roberts explained that he, quote, needed a fake ID to rent servers. Tarbell adds that, quote, serving hosting companies often require customers to provide some form of identity documents in order to validate who they are. Around this time, DPR gave his one and only interview with Wired Magazine writer Andy Greenberg. I only mention him because he makes up some of the most persuasive content in the deep web documentary. He doesn't think the guy he interviewed was necessarily Ross. He doesn't believe a lot of things he heard coming from the press after Ross's arrest. Oh, yes. And now we're going to go on to the big boy meeting. That's what I call it. (laughs) Yep. Here we are, the big boy meeting in New York, New York. Everyone uh, Everyone is invited to the table to share what they got. Namely, Gary Alford of the IRS. Yay. Good Gary. Jared. Deryagin. Thank you. Yay. He's actually, those are the two good guys. Yeah. The rest? Kind of douchey. Douchey or bad? All right. So we got Chris Tarbell. He's just a chat. He's okay. Yeah. Carl Force of the DEA and others. So the DEA, they're the shady fuckers. Yeah. And they're, the, they're like the Marco Polo task team. And they got the shady agents. Yeah. Almost everything is revealed to everyone at this point. But Gary Alford feels like he shouldn't share his info on Ross Ulbricht. It's not like he had captured the Silk Road server or assumed an identity to meet with DPR online. He had just Googled and figured out this guy. So he didn't participate. Yeah, he like pulled back. Like, he was going to say, like, I got this really good, like, it's, he was going to do his old Altoid story. And how he found this guy in San Francisco. Well, he was, and then... And it was his birthday. Yep. Uh-huh. 
But then he was going to do that. But then Chris Tarbell of the FBI said that they had the server. Yeah, and that's when he was like, well, so, then, well I, then my, my like, shit doesn't matter. He's like, well, I'll just go eat my cake. <laughs> he didn't participate. However, later on, he would see a large piece of butcher paper with a bunch of notes on it at the headquarters. On it, he would see the words, quote, Momi Toby's Laguna Street in San Francisco, which is apparently the only physical location of when DPR logged in when he was scrubbing that computer. Uh, the f- frosty one, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. When he asks the head guy about it because... And the head guy is Saren... Gas. I have his... Huh? Gas. Gas? Saren Gas. No! <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, we say his name later on. He's an attorney general. I, I forgot who's oh, kind okay. of the ringleader of all of this. And the guy's name is Saren. Okay. Not Gas. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the head guy. Yeah. Uh, he asks about this guy because he knows a guy in San Francisco that looks good as potential, like a, like a target. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he's basically blown off. Yeah. After the big meeting of the heads, Jared was brought into the big boy club. Yeah, go Jared. Yeah, Jared. You're in the big boy club now, bud. And one of his first orders of business was to capture a woman. Yeah, that's not <laughs> too bad. Go Jared. <laughs> so this woman was from Texas, and she was an active moderator and employee of DPRs. He was able to suss out a lot of information from her, letting her have immunity if they could take over her account. And, like, when he met her, he made sure to go through. He's like, what are all the things that you, when do you log on? What kind of emoticons do you use? How do you spell certain things? Like when you laugh, do you say LOL? Do you say ha ha ha? Yeah. Do you say he he? He got all the nuances of the way that she typed and the and like the hours that she logged in at so that DPR would be none the wiser. So then he assumes her identity, which is? Cyrus. I think it's Cyrus. Is it? Is that how he said it in the book? It I could be Cyrus. To- okay, it could <laughs> be Cyrus. It, you know what? It probably is. I think it is. Yeah. Probably like the star. I thought the star was Cirrus. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he was able to speak directly to DPR, gather intel, and see exactly when DPR was logged in, which would come in handy for arresting him later on. Right around this time, Julia comes for a visit to San Francisco. Ross and her rekindle their longtime love. They do it. Spoiler like alert. <laughs> on a cliff. Through personal hardships and struggles, she has found religion and exuberant. <laughs> Sorry. Cirrus. <laughs> Cirrus. Cirrus. Thanks, Siri. Cirrus. I think uh, it's Google. Surely. The cloud forming, wispy, philamp. Surely you can't be Cirrus. Uh, it's a kind of cloud. That's a cloud. So she finds God because she can't. She has a shitty life. She can't life. find a man and get babies. Well, she was in an abusive relationship and started getting an eating disorder. And there she was, was that. Like, too. Yeah. And like a woman came to her right in the midst of like her shittiest time and was like, come to church with me. And she got baptized and got all better. And then she went to go visit San Francisco where she was feeling really good about herself and her faith and everything. Yep. So, like, it, they were both in fairly good spots at this point. Obviously, he's still anxious 
if we believe that he's still the drug lord at this point, which I I think at this point he is still involved with the Silk Road, just based on however Nick Bilton got information from Julia, if what he's saying is true, which I believe is, then he's still at least being somewhat active on the Silk Road at this point. So they're both doing well. He's worth like millions of dollars and he's kind of getting the life that he wants even if it's sort of secretive. Sounds a little stressful. It does sound in- insanely stressful. And Julia's like feeling mentally good and spiritually good, you know. So then they meet. Yep. And Ross goes to church with her and all that. However, she comes home early from a shopping trip. That's right. And catches him on his computer logged into the Silk Road website. And he's all, uh, 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 yeah, uh, like I'm, not jer- I'm not jerking off to Gayport. <laughs> He's sl- <laughs> this isn't Michael Peterson. <laughs> Hold on, let me step over this dead body to get on my gay porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, Michael Peterson. Uh, yeah. Also on this trip, she asks him about marriage, and he tells her that he's not ready. There's still things in life he wants to do, like get arrested and shit. <laughs> oh, God. So she leaves on a bittersweet note with him promising to visit her in Austin soon. So Gary Alford was Yay. still, yeah, good Gary, was still convinced Ross <laughs> was their guy. And he had his secretary run another background check on him. But this time there was a hit on his account as opposed to the other times. So Customs and Border Protection had, quote, seized counterfeit identity documents. Agents from Department of Homeland Security visited Ross's house on 15th Avenue, not Street. In San Francisco. Bingo. He called the lead guy at the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney General Saren Turner. That's what it's not gas. Not gas. It's Turner. <laughs> um, he laid out his evidence. While on the call with Gary, Saren Googled distance between Ross's San Francisco address and the coffee shop. Uh, the Momi Tobies. That's the one. Yep. Bingo again. It was just around the corner. Everything was sounding very promising, but Saren wanted to get the other guys on the phone to see what they thought. On a conference call with Jared and Chris, Gary laid it all out again. When he mentioned the email, frosty at frosty.com, Chris's ears pricked up. What now? Oh, it's just that the servers and computer were called frosty. The ones that they seized in Iceland, yeah. Yeah. So, bingo again. If you were playing bingo, you'd be winning a lot of money at this point. You're bingo master. So bingo again. They got him. Even though it didn't make any sense that a kid with no programming background whose Facebook photos were mostly moments of him camping, kiteboarding with suburban friends, and hugging his mother, was responsible for creating what authorities now believed was a multi-billion dollar drug empire and what made even less sense was that this kid had ordered the cold-blooded murders of almost half a dozen people. It just didn't add up, but it was him. For the next two weeks, the FBI watched his every move, finding the right time to nab him. The one mistake that Tarbell and his crew made when catching the Lolsex hacker gang was that not everyone was logged into their accounts when they were encrypted. Oh, oh when oh. they were arrested, sorry. Yeah, so... Yeah. One person, I think, was able to close their computer and they couldn't get into it. It was the main dude. The main yeah. dude, yes. And they were able to crack his 
password after like six or eight months. It was kind of a lucky break. And it was Chewy1234. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They wouldn't make this mistake again. Through the Sirius account, we found out it's Sirius. Yeah. <laughs> Through the Sirius account, Jared was able to communicate with the undercover agents following Ross each time DPR logged in. And each time they can confirm that Ross was indeed logging into his computer. Each time Jared told him that DPR had logged off, the agents could confirm that Ross had shut his laptop. This is also the point at which Carl Forrest was shitting his pants, trying to hit up Jared about what they got. Yeah, and Jared and Chris Tarbell, who were like some of the good guys in the story, they would be like, yo, Jared's been like texting me being like, what you got, what you got, what you got? Because he is like scared at this point because he had asked DPR at some point, like, hey, make sure to delete these conversations that we're having or encrypt them or something because I don't want to, my shit to go down when your shit goes down because I'm dealing a lot on here, you know? And so he was crossing his fingers being like hoping that DPR had done what he said he was going to do, but there was a really good chance that he wasn't and that when the servers were found and all these conversations with DPR and his employees would be exposed to the officials. He just wanted to make sure that his shit wasn't exposed, basically. Because remember, he had been extorting money from the Silk Road and doing some bad things and double-crossing, triple-crossing, quadruple-crossing, all kinds of people. And giving information to DPR that was, like, legit information, that he was not supposed to be giving Well, him. he didn't want his gravy train to get yeah. caught. Well, yeah. yeah, he didn't want his gravy. Well, he also knew what he was doing was criminal because he had gotten in trouble for this shit before, you know. As this was coming to a head, Carl Force is trying to milk every last cent out of the operation that he could, assuming another username, French maid, <laughs> a sexy informant who was offering even more police information to DPR. Only Carl fucked up. You know, he's got almost a million dollars. Like, how much, you know? Well, at this point, he's got $657,000 because the French maid would be able to get 100000 out of DPR. And that was the last 100000 Yeah, it was get. near 800000 at the yeah. end, right? What's crazy to think is that most, if it was through Bitcoin, it was probably eight, you know, that in Bitcoin was probably millions. And if he had been able to pull this off, he would be like a billionaire today. He might even be more than that. <laughs> yeah, but well, we'll see. So he signed the message to DPR as Carl. <laughs> Dope. And turned around and corrected himself, er, Carla. And so he called himself Carla Sophia. And he was like, oh, that's my name. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> I love sucking dicks. <laughs> He was able to extort $100,000 out of this assumed online identity, and it was the last 100000 he would be able to extort, and it would prove to be another nail in his coffin down the road. On October 1st, 2013, the day started off just like any other for Ross, but by 3.13 p.m. that day, this would be the last day he would be outside of a prison cell. After being home all day, Ross decided to change locations by walking over to the Bellow coffee shop. Seen as there were no spots to sit where his computer would be facing a wall, he walked out. All the while, agents were following him and Jared was monitoring his online activity through the Sirius user account. 
I have taken pretty much this entire thing directly from the book because he does such a good breakdown of the day. Ross decided on Glen Park Library in San Francisco to log in at and check his accounts. He logged into the Tor network as the Dread Pirate Roberts and Jared, pretending to be Cirrus, asked him a question that would require DPR to open up the administrator section of the site. Before he did that, though, DPR asked Cirrus, you did Bitcoin exchange before you worked for me, right? It seemed like it was a test. A young Asian woman wandered through the library, plucking books off the shelves. That just sounds weird. <laughs> like she's just plucking them and throwing them onto the ground yeah. or something. But that's how the, that's what the book says. After a while, she came around the corner of the stacks, standing in front of the science fiction and romance sections, and pulled up a chair at the round beige table where Ross sat. His backpack rested next to him. His laptop glowed as he typed away. He peered over his computer screen at the young woman. She had fair complexion and was perusing the pile of books in front of her. She seemed safe enough, so Ross looked back at his computer, his fingers methodically typing away and moving up and down the keyboard. At this point, frantically hoping his memory would serve him correctly, Jared answered, yes, just for a little bit. I stopped because of reporting requirements. At that point, DPR asked him which post he wanted him to check out. Jared can confirm that right at this point, Ross was logged into all three levels of administrator accounts. Go, 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 he wrote, on the, he wrote to the team. Pull laptop, go. Jared and Chris were running into the library at this point, hearing the commotion begin. The Asian woman yelled, fuck you, at a man standing next to her. Everyone in the library looked up, startled by the outburst. The man who had just been told to go fuck himself raised his fist to seemingly punch the woman in the face. As his clenched hand went into the air, startled Ross turned around in his chair to witness the commotion. And just in that moment, as Jared and Tarbell stood at the base of the stairs, the Asian woman reached over and gently slid his Samsung laptop Oof. away from him. That's so tricky. Yep, those rat bastards. <laughs> Ross turned back, half comprehending what was going on, and tried to lunge for the laptop, yet he couldn't. Oof. Someone had grabbed his arms from behind. FBI, FBI, he heard. After being handcuffed and put into the back of the FBI car, the first four words out of his mouth were, quote, I want a lawyer. Good. A, yeah. Well, it's not like it did him that much good. On October 2nd, 2013, the Silk Road shut down. Immediately after Ross Ulbricht's detainment, the FBI took action to shut down the Silk Road and seized up to $4 million in Bitcoin from the site. The site's patrons migrated to smaller competitor services such as a market called Black Market Reloaded, but many of those closed or were shut down as well. And I think a bunch of different actual Silk Roads popped up. Yeah, there was Silk Road 2.0. That guy ended up getting some time for that because I think that only lasted like a couple of months. Yeah. The FBI used the shutdown to deliver a warning to these other sites and reaffirm their commitment to exposing criminals on the dark web. A spokesperson talked to Forbes saying, quote, no one is beyond the reach of the FBI. We will find you. And then we're going to jump forward in time about a year and a half at this point. Um, oh, and I also think he was not given a bail amount because this is where it got screwy. He basically was charged with murder so that he wouldn't get the bail, 
But then they like revoked the murder charge because they realized that they didn't have like any bodies or any evidence to support that. So they were kind of able to use the murder charge to get him no bail and to stick him in jail. But then they took it off the table because they knew it wouldn't stick. So he never was able to get out of prison, I believe. Hmm. Yeah, it's it got real screwy around then. On May 29th, 2015, Ross Ulbricht is sentenced to double life imprisonment. Nobody believed Ross Ulbricht would get off scot-free, but the FBI built a formidable case against him. They obtained the testimony of his former friend, Richard Bates, yeah. who had helped him develop the code for the Silk Road. They had infiltrated the organization itself early on with undercover agents posing as employees, customers, and vendors. And they combed through anything Ulbricht had ever done online and matched up things he'd mentioned both as his, both as himself and as Dread Pirate Roberts. Ulbricht was given five concurrent sentences, including two life sentences, without the possibility of parole. Which is so intense for a non murder for a non violent first time offender. Well, they're also trying to make it an example. Exactly. But like, you know. But first time offender, non violent. Because multi-billion those, dollar drug king. I know, I know. So that's they got the Meh. king. It's like it's like getting a Rico charge or something. Like yeah, if you can, I think it, there might well, have been Rico and uh, Kingpin. Those are like the creme de la creme of like charges that you can bring against someone. Hard to prove. The prison that he actually went to when they he was convicted um, was like where. Um, some famous gangsters. Al Capone or something? I don't think it was Al Capone. I, you know, now it's escaping my mind. But like Whitey um, Bulger? No, it doesn't No, he matter. was a hitman. But like some famous criminals. Yeah. Like in Rico charges. So like gangsters and shit. Yeah. One thing I want to say is that most of the information I use to kind of write this episode is from the book, which I said is very biased towards the police and the court and court documents and interviews and stuff like he didn't get a lot of stuff from Ross directly. So to kind of balance things a little bit, I got a lot of information here at the end to kind of dispute some of the things we've talked throughout as kind of to be fair to Ross. Okay. So this information is taken directly from freeross.org, which is his website that I believe is maintained by his parents. Ross Ulbricht, a young, peaceful, first-time offender, is serving a double-life sentence without parole plus 40 years for all nonviolent charges associated with creating the Silk Road website. An Eagle Scout and scholarship student, he was a 26-year-old idealistic libertarian, passionate about free markets and privacy, when he made the site. Ross was never prosecuted for causing harm or bodily injury, and no victim was named at trial. This is a sentence that shocks the conscience. Ross has expressed heartfelt remorse for creating the Silk Road and accepts responsibility for the mistake he made. Although he never intended any harm, he has learned how even well-meaning and idealistic actions can have unintended consequences. Now much wiser and more mature, Ross has vowed that should he be released, he would never come close to breaking the law again. <laughs> Cross I my heart say, and hope to die. I know. For being <laughs> such a smart guy, that is like the lamest, like, I'm sorry letter I've ever heard. I know. I know. I, pr- I Maybe the judge and the jury didn't feel like he was sincere in his, like, apology. I mean, I haven't, honestly, I've watched 
no footage of Ross except for him dancing in a tutu, singing I'm a Little Teapot, which is how the Deep Web documentary ends, just showing you like, oh, look, at he's the sweetest, silliest guy. He couldn't ever do anything bad. And it's like that doesn't prove or disprove his innocence at all to me. Like, Yeah, it just proves that he's fucking high on mushrooms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sampling too much of his own product yeah. there. Ross was not accused of selling drugs or illegal items himself, nor did he launder money or hack computers, but was held responsible for what others listed on the site. In a letter to the court, Ross wrote, quote, Silk Road turned out to be a very naive and costly idea that I deeply regret. It was supposed to be about giving people the freedom to make their own choices, to pursue their own happiness, however they individually saw fit. I do not and never have advocated the abuse of drugs. I call bullshit. I understand what a terrible mistake I made. I call bullshit was me, not him. It's Um, not my fault the world is filled with a bunch of junkies. If you want to create peace in the world, I don't know. Selling a bunch of drugs and guns probably isn't the way to do it. Yeah, you need you should have stuck to the poisons and missiles. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about the fact that they did he eventually allow the sale of kidneys on the Silk Road? There was mention of like human body parts for sale. Yeah, and I know that like he was quote unquote an idealistic person or whatever, but like you're obviously a genius. You don't fucking believe that he was doing it. I don't know how you sell your own kidney. (laughs) You only need one. If he was DPR, he was doing it because he was high on the power he got. Well, the book makes it, makes it sound like that for sure. And, and I, and I don't think that he would have continued. I think that after the first time that you have to order a hit, on one of your employees or you hear about the death of somebody like they give a very bad review on the Silk Road like hey this killed my friend you think that you know what that's that's harmful I need to shut this down like you know what's kind of crazy what with people into hard drugs like with the fentanyl being in heroin and stuff when people die people the other people want that shit because they know it's good fucking hard shit Mm. crazy no they don't want the stuff that kills them no they do who like people with, you know, heroin users. I don't know. I don't think that people want fentanyl in their heroin. Yeah, they do. Now they do. They want to know about it. Hmm. I guess I don't know enough fentanyl users. <laughs> yeah, well, I can introduce you to some. <laughs> I know I've known ex-junkies, but yeah, no, no. I don't, I just, it's just a strange world. It is. It's on fire right now. The entire case that led to Ross's egregious sentence from the investigation to the trial and sentencing was riddled with corruption, prosecutorial misconduct, and constitutional violations. In the course of arriving at the conviction and sentence, Ross's rights were violated numerous times. All of this I agree with. Both the prosecution and much of the media smeared Ross with unprosecuted false allegations of planning violence that never occurred or at least were never proven, and never ruled on by a jury, and were ultimately dismissed with prejudice. His case was tainted by corrupt agents now in prison, warrantless spying, and lies under oath by the FBI and the AUSA, I don't even know what that is, proven evidence tampering, preclusion of exculpatory evidence, and much more. I know how to say that word. It just came out weird, okay? Gotcha. 
Ross's cruel and unusual punishment is an extreme example of sentencing disparity and the kind of abuse that reformers are now fighting to change. So this whole sentencing disparity, you're going to hear later on what they got. But like those two corrupt agents who were all doing all kinds of crazy shit, you know, they got they did not get life sentences. They didn't even get close to life sentences. And then the guys who ran the Silk Road 2.0, they got like I think one of them even got like probation. And there were other there were tons and tons of vendors and dealers that were caught, like almost all of the major ones were caught. Variety Jones was caught. I don't know what his sentence was or anything, but all of these people were caught and they got like nobody got more than like eight years. Well, another thing, at least I don't know if Ross did, but the Dread Pirate Roberts definitely went on tirades on his site about that, like super anti-government tirades. And I think he also like fires some shots across the bow as far as like you can't catch me kind of things. And so I think there might have been some of that. Like, But again, this is a jury, though. Do, are they in charge of sentencing? Yeah. Hmm. But again, there are people on the jury that are probably patriotic, too, though, that are like, you can't you're not allowed to do that. You can't do that. You know, like that's illegal. You shouldn't be allowed to regulate like how the government does. Bunch of Karens. Yeah. What a Karen jury. <laughs> Compared to others sentenced for similar or worse conduct. Ross's sentence is grossly excessive and disproportionate. All the other Silk Road defendants received sentences of no more than 10 years, including the actual drug dealers and the men behind Silk Road 2.0, a bigger replica. So just like I said, Ross and his legal team at Williams and Connolly LLP, supported by 21 organizations, petitioned the Supreme Court, challenging important Fourth and Sixth Amendment violations in this case, but the court declined to hear it. A lot of people and organizations support Ross. Ross's recent clemency petition is steadily growing with almost 300,000 signatures, making it the second largest clemency petition on change.org. While enduring the harshness of prison for his seventh consecutive year, Ross has been a model inmate, leading classes, tutoring, helping fellow inmates, and being a good influence. He has also completed several educational programs. He has never received a disciplinary sanction and is universally liked by the prison staff. Again, this is all coming from freeross.org, but I believe it. Based solely on his life sentence and despite his nonviolent history and low security score, he is being held at a maximum security facility. And during the COVID-19 thing, like we talked about in the first episode, he is not allowed to come out. Despite his ordeal, Ross remains a fundamentally positive and compassionate human being. He clings to the hope of a second chance and dreams of a future where he can start a family, contribute to society with his education and skills, and inspire change as an advocate for criminal justice reform. I don't know if I believe all that, but yeah. Just get me out of here. He has a Twitter, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but he has a Twitter. He does read a lot of criminal justice books. Like he read Brian Stevens's Just Mercy and he was just like, wow, that was amazing. Like he does seem like a really fucking nice guy. It's just this part of him that did this very bad thing. And there's a huge potential for a lot of the bad things that he allegedly did. He maybe didn't even do because somebody else was sharing the username Dread Pirate Roberts on the Silk Road, you know? So a lot of this just feels very unfair and very 
just like inappropriate. That's such a huge sentence for something that no one can really prove, you know? I think his... Um... But he's not the only one in prison, you know, for life for not a good reason. I mean, well, there's still... I know, there are so many things. Every single time I swear I open like social media, it's like blah, blah, blah has been released after 23 years because of like they finally tested the DNA. And it's like, fuck, dude. If like an innocent person who could have gotten like a very easy to prove DNA test, if it takes them 23 years to be cleared, you know, off of death row or something, how long do you think it'll take for Ross? I mean, he's got Keanu Reeves on his side, though. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that means kind of a lot. And Kim Kardashian, too. Like, there are a lot of people that are like on Ross's side that have a lot of money and a lot of sway. And a lot of booty. <laughs> <laughs> In October of 2015, not long after Ross Ulbricht's sentencing, another trial took place. This trial concerned Carl Mark Force and Sean Bridges, the two agents that had used the Silk Road and Curtis Green to steal money. The two of them were eventually caught after they tried to launder money through financial services like Venmo and Bitstamp. Ross Ulbricht has always had a loyal following, but the last person in the world one might expect to call for his freedom is Curtis Green. The man Ross seemingly tried to take out using a hitman. 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 <laughs> <laughs> In a Twitter post on December 17th. You really got to pre-read these, sweetheart. <laughs> hitman. In a Twitter post on December 17th, 2017, Green wrote, Ross Ulbricht got a raw deal. There is so much more to the Silk Road story than people know, and I can't yet talk about. I don't believe Ross is dangerous or that it's in his character to order a hit on anyone. He should never have gotten that horrible sentence. Hashtag free Ross. So I just I really want to include that tweet and it's very prominently featured on the free Ross website because this is like a guy who had allegedly been, you know, had an, a hit ordered against him. But again, the hit was really only ordered because they thought or DPR thought that he had stolen $350,000 from him, which was proven that Sean Bridges did that. So even if DPR really had ordered the hit, like they're allegedly saying that he did, but they weren't able to bring up in trial, realistically, it was Sean Bridges who stole that money, you know, and he wouldn't have ordered the hit on Curtis Green ever. Right. If the if money it, hadn't gotten if it had, Yeah, exactly. Right. By someone in an authority figure. Supporters of Ross Ulbricht say that his case brings a new precedent to Fourth Amendment rights in the digital age, that ignoring the warrantless seizure of the Silk Road servers is a dangerous thing for private citizens, that anything and everything is up for grabs in these new times. Yep. If you want to follow Ross, his Twitter is at RealRossU. Like the letter U. Yes, that <laughs> At the top of his Twitter page is a link to his petition, Clemency for Ross Ulbricht, serving double life for a website. I actually did sign it because even if I think he's guilty, I don't believe that he deserves a life sentence or two life sentences with no parole. I think that's unfair. I think that he is somewhat guilty and he's been in there for over seven years at this point. I think that's enough. I feel like he's done enough good in prison. That like he, it's it's he's it's time for him to go. I'm surprised the DEA didn't want him to work for them. Yeah, yeah, it, that's happened before. Yeah, if you're good enough at crime, 
the real criminals want. He should work for fucking NSA, yeah. <laughs> Something, yeah. He's a smart dude. All right. So anything you want to add, Kevin? How are you feeling? Well, this is a crazy story, and I do think that the punishment is probably excessive. But when you fuck with the government, the government will fuck you. And also, it's such a new frontier for crime that there's no precedent. And so it's kind of scary that the precedent being set for, you know, fucking around on the internet is a life sentence. Yeah. I mean... But I guess, again, there's this idea of, like, setting an example because it's such uncharted territory that who knows, you know? Yeah. Well, you can follow us on Twitter <laughs> at TC Dumpster and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. We also have a website where we put all of our source info, truecrimedumpster.com. We also have a Facebook group, which didn't make it on my sheet here, but it's True Crime Dumpster where we post a bunch of stuff every day and other people post stuff and we have some good conversations there. So I think we just added Donnie. Right? Yeah, Donald Stanley has yeah. been very Hi, active. Donnie. Hi, Donnie. Welcome. We moved. <laughs> yeah. We live in Ventura now. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, literally anything. If you just Google True Crime Dumpster, nobody apparently wants that name for like their baby or. <laughs> yeah, it's surprisingly easy to get. So True Crime Dumpster, there is no other. It's just us. If you do that, you'll find us. Like, I And I think at this point, we're on enough podcatchers that. It just, it's like an octopus arms. It just goes out to other things, you know, because that's how octopi work. <laughs> Octopuses. They got their things and everything. You can uh, please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about us, talk about us, whatever. Talk shit. I don't care. Fucking do what you want. Um, so you can tune in next time where we talk out the trash and we will not continue the story anymore because I cannot... Case closed. Do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. By every, I miss Ross, the store, a lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's been hard, but I will not miss talking about Ross Ulbricht for a little while. Hashtag free Ross. With everything that's going on right now, I feel like there's a lot of people, you know, the media is really fanning this division between everybody, like a whole divide and conquer thing. And I think that it's important that people... You know, don't look at their neighbors as enemies and every, you know. Don't eat your neighbors like Alex Jones. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, God, that clip was amazing. Yeah. I eat their ass. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, don't. Ch check out what my godfather said. It's amazing. Ew, don't call him that. <laughs> but I don't know what I'm trying to say. What he's trying to say is have a great week and we will be back with a little bit lesser of an episode where we will do another garbage people regurgitated we got a couple good ones for you no murder but lots of molest yeah yeah i was gonna say it might be a little lighter but i don't know if it is there's some molesters in there yeah sorry but so, we don't like them they're garbage people yeah have a nice week we love you bye don't fight each other fight the government they're the real enemy bye 1776 will commence again. You like it? This is just the info war. Imagine you get in a physical fight with us. It's over. It's over. It's over. It's over.